And then after the Greeks had officially secured victory, knowing still that it would be hard on his body, he couldn't help himself. So he ran again another 26-ish miles from the marathon battlefield because he had to announce the good news to his people. And as he did, as he crossed the finish line, as he opened his mouth and declared Nike, which means victory, he collapsed and died on the spot. He was so concerned with the good news of victory that he was willing to do whatever it took to cross the finish line. So friend, what about you? What about us? What are you willing to endure in order to cross the finish line of faith? Though it's not a 26.2 mile marathon, we're not day runners like ancient Greeks going from one city to the next. We are all entrusted with a race to run. Right? And we're also promised hardship as we run it. Right? Paul goes as far as to promise this in the book of 2 Timothy. He says that everyone who desires to live a godly life will be persecuted. Make no mistake about it. So the question we're faced with, church, right? it's not whether or not we'll be persecuted for our faith. It's not whether or not life's trials will take their tolls on us. The question we're all faced with is, are you going to give up? It's, are you going to give up? And if not, if you're going to endure, well, what is it that's going to keep you going? What is it that's going to keep you going? The Apostle Paul, as a lot of us know, he knows a lot about endurance, right? He's lived it. He's finished the task. He's been persecuted and he's been beaten. He's been celebrated. He's been admired. He's done it all with a clear conscience. And now as he pens his last letter, even the last words of his letter to his protege, Timothy, he shares what it will take for us to endure just like him. So again, let me encourage you to open your copy of God's word to the book of 2 Timothy to chapter 4, and as you do so, we find Paul yet again on the brink of death. He's been arrested, he's been imprisoned yet again. But as he goes on to say, this time is different. He's convinced that he isn't going to be around much longer. He says, at the time of my departure, it's close So he writes to his friend, to his co-worker, who's leading the church, leading the charge in Ephesus. It's a church that Paul had a hand in planting in Acts 20. And he charges him to continue in faithfulness. He says, Timothy, don't give up. As he points to his own example for Timothy to follow. So if you would read with me as we consider together from the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Paul says this. He says, I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead. And because of his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. 
correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and teaching. For the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. They will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. But as for you, exercise self-control in everything. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is close. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. There is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but to all those who loved his appearing. This is the word of the Lord. And I think the main argument, what Paul is especially trying to convince Timothy to do in this passage, is simply to endure in faithfulness. Right, in both his ministry and in his life, to endure in faithfulness as he anticipates his final reward. The church is no different for us today as we consider the significance of this passage in our lives. My prayer is just the same. It's that we'll be convinced to endure in faithfulness as you anticipate the final reward promised to you by Jesus himself. And Paul's structure, his argument is simple. He charges Timothy to give himself to two things, and then he gives Timothy two reasons to pursue those charges. In the first four verses, and this will serve as our outline just as well, in the second four verse, or in the first four verses, the charge is to preach the word. And then in the second four verses, in five through eight, the charge is to practice the word. It's to preach the word, and then it's to practice what you preach. So first, charge number one, we'll consider this together. Paul charges Timothy to preach the word. Now, I want you to picture that you have the opportunity to pass the baton to someone you've been investing in, you've been discipling for years, you've rejoiced with them, you've cried with them, right? You've prospered together and you've suffered together over years. And now you have the chance to instill in them one final thing before you depart. You could tell them to love their neighbor, right? You could tell them to put others before themselves, You could tell them to love others like Jesus did, to serve them, to live for their behalf and their good, all of which are noble things to pass on, all of which are things we should be giving ourselves to. But Paul doesn't do that, not necessarily. Paul zeroes in on something really specific. Remember, he knows Timothy. They've done life together. He knows he's in Ephesus where, according to chapter 2, verse, verse 18, there's opponents who will deny basic tenets of the gospel. Right, as we'll see in our passage, he knows Timothy's own church members, at least some of them, will one day reject him. He knows him. He knows what he's going through. So he leaves him with a specific appeal. 
And he says this, he says, I solemnly charge you, Timothy, not by my own authority, right? because that doesn't hold nearly enough weight for what I'm about to say to you, but before the presence of God himself, he says, on the basis that Jesus will come again, he'll come back and you will give an account to him. So brother Timothy, preach the word, preach the word, which then begs the question, at least I think, well, what is this word that Timothy is supposed to preach? Or what is this word that he's to give himself to? It's the same word he tells Timothy to hold on to in chapter one. He says, hold on to the pattern of sound teaching you've heard from me. And then in chapter two, it's the same boundless word. It's the powerful, powerful word. There he says that though I'm in shackles, though my limbs are literally chained together, I'm chained because of my preaching of the gospel. This word I'm charging you to preach is the exact opposite. It's boundless. You can't stop it. He declares the word of God is not bound. And then if you look up from our passage, just a few verses to the end of chapter 3, you'll find one of the most loaded illustrations of the nature of this word in the entirety of Scripture. I'm sure a lot of us are familiar with it. Again, if you look up to the end of chapter 3, we'll read together starting in verse 14. Paul says, As for you, Timothy, continue in what you've learned, what you've firmly believed. You know those who taught you. And you know that from infancy, you've known the sacred scriptures. He's saying, you know the Bible, Timothy, you know it. Your grandmother Lois, your mother Eunice, they've instilled this in you from the time you were a little boy. So you know they're able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul says, my church, it's through the word, it's through the scriptures, the same ones we're holding and preaching and listening to this morning, right? where God has revealed how we might know him and be saved. Right? The scriptures make us wise for salvation because it reveals to us the content of salvation. And then he says in the following verse in verse 16, he says that all of it, from Genesis to Revelation, all of it is inspired by God. And I'm sure many of you have heard this before, or you've been asked this question before, but I remember a pastor one time asking the question, do you want to hear God's voice? Do you want to audibly hear him speak to you? And then he said, friends, if that's the case, then simply read your Bible out loud. My right, friends, the principle is that God has spoken to us in his word, right? It's inspired by him. It's breathed out of his very mouth. It's how we hear his voice still today. And the end of chapter three goes on. He says, all scripture is inspired by God and it's profitable for teaching for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, 
and equipped for every good work. Friends, this is the word that Timothy was charged to preach. It's sound and true, it's boundless, it's breathed out and inspired by God himself. And church, it's the same word that your own pastors are charged to preach to you in season and out of season. So Trey and Greg, as pastors, elders of OBC, as those who've been called to serve this church in a similar way as Timothy was called to serve the church in Ephesus, you're charged before God as those who will give account to him is to preach his word. And Paul gives you five commands for how you're to go about doing that in this passage, for what that preaching looks like. He says, you're to be ready at all times when it's convenient for you, when it's inconvenient. When you come across your most favorite passage, when you come across your least favorite one, you're to use the word to correct those under your care, to rebuke in love. You're to encourage and to teach patiently, remembering the patience that God still shows you today. Your charge, brothers, is nothing other than to say what God has already said. It's to speak his own words after him. It's not to get up here and talk about the hog's latest recruiting class. It's not to even get up here and share your own words and opinions for the kinds of things that lead to a better marriage. Because frankly, brothers, your words and opinions don't carry a whole lot of weight, not compared to the boundless word of God, right? So your charge from God through Timothy is to preach his word. But what if you're not a pastor, right? Which is about 98% of us in this room. Does that simply mean that we're off the hook, right? Because we don't take the pulpit and we don't read and preach and explain and apply the Bible to a large group of believers every week. Does that mean we're off the hook? Friends, it doesn't mean that at all. I think it's helpful for us to remember that 2 Timothy is a public letter. Even when it was written, it was written as a public letter, right? It was written to Timothy, sure, but Timothy would have gotten it and he would have made a beeline for his congregation and he would have read it to them out loud. He wanted his church to know what Paul was charging them with. Paul would have expected him to know that. And the church in Ephesus was sort of a a secondary audience. He wanted them to know its contents. So then the logical result, right, that both Paul and Timothy would have had in mind if Timothy was to be devoted to preaching the word, then his congregation was to devote themselves to hearing it. So OBC my question for you is, are you devoted to preach or to hearing the preached word? Are you devoted to hearing the word? And as we've already read together, we've read that scripture is profitable for you. 
Right? Not only that, not just that, but the teaching of Scripture is profitable for you. Friends, let's, let's take a moment and consider the benefits that 2 Timothy gives us of hearing the word preached. Again, as we've already read, the teaching of the word, it trains us in righteousness. Right? How, to, how to fight sin, how to live lives that reflect the character of God. The teaching of the word equips the saints. It equips us for the good works God has already prepared for us to walk in. So so church, I encourage you, perhaps over dinner this evening, or maybe even in your small groups this week, to consider again the benefits of sitting under sound preaching week in and week out. Right? Ask one another, how has the preaching of the word benefited you just in the last two months since you've been a part of OBC? How has week in, week out, sitting under sound teaching shaped your life going years back? Encourage one another with stories of how the Lord has used that in your life. And I encourage you to share that with Trey and to share that with Greg. I encourage your pastors to preach the word by sharing with them how the Lord is using it in your life, how it's training you for your own righteousness, how it's equipping you for your own good works. My friends, preaching isn't a charge so the pastor can have a job description or so he can draw a paycheck. Preaching is a charge so people can hear the word and be saved. So members of OBC, God would say through the Apostle Paul, devote yourselves to the hearing of the word. But there's another reason. Just as well as Paul goes on in his letter, there's another reason why Timothy was given this charge. One that explicitly comes at the beginning of verse 3. Notice that that sentence begins with the word for. Right, so we know Paul is sharing the reason for this charge, the reason for his preaching. And the reason is because there's coming a time when people will reject the truth. That's what the text says. Consider it with me from verse 3. Again, Paul says, For the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, they will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. Now, this may be kind of a gross illustration, but I'm a guest preacher, and there's no guarantee I'll be invited back. So when I was a teenager, right, I, I, I grew up playing sports. I especially played baseball and basketball. And as a teenager, one of the results of that for me was that I got athlete's foot. Right, it's a, a, a rash on the bottom of your foot that comes from sweating, right, in in socks and in tight-fitting shoes. And if you've ever had it, then you know it itches like crazy. Like, no matter what you do, it just doesn't want to go away. You may scratch it for a minute, and in that minute, that relief is satisfying. But after a few minutes go by, the itch comes back, and it's worse than ever before. Paul tells Timothy 
The time is coming when people will have an itch so strong that they can't help but scratch it. Their ears will burn because they have an overwhelming desire to hear whatever they want to hear. Not what they need to hear, what they want to hear. And notice the result in verse 4. It's that they'll turn away not just from the truth, it's that they'll turn away from hearing the truth. It's that they'll turn away from the preached word in their lives. And as a result, they will wander off into myths. They'll wander off into lies. Friends, if you turn away from the preached word, it won't be long until you turn away from the person of the word. Paul seems to expect, even anticipate, that this kind of thing is going to happen. He's witnessed it in Hymenaeus and Philetus as they swerve from the truth in chapter 2. He's been deserted by Demas as he comes across later in chapter 4. So then Paul charges Timothy and he says, don't cave, brother. Don't cave. Some are going to lose their appetite for the preached word. They're going to come to you. They're going to tell you, I don't like it when you teach like this. I don't like what you had to say this afternoon or this morning. I I think you should talk about this instead. Or you, you know what you preached on this morning is really outdated, right? You should really get with the times. You should really update your convictions. If you don't, I think I'm, I'm going to take my family and I'm going to take my money and I'm going to go to the church across town. So Paul reminds him, he, again, he says, stay the course, brother. Don't cave, Timothy. Jesus is the one to whom you'll give an account, not them. And he's the one who charges you to preach his word. And friends, you can go somewhere to find novelty if something new is the itch you want to scratch. It's not hard. It's just not worth it. Or we don't need something new. We need the same word who in the beginning was God and who in the beginning was with God. We need the preached word because it reveals to us the person of the word. It makes us wise for salvation. This is the first charge that he gives to Timothy. As a result, it will be wise for us to devote ourselves to it. That's the first charge. Then the second charge that Paul gives Timothy is to practice the word. If the first is to preach the word, then the second is to practice what you preach. In direct contrast to those who swerve away from the truth, Paul says in verse 5, he says, But as for you, Timothy, as for you, exercise self-control, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, all in all, brother, fulfill your ministry. Now, I remember a guy in college I got to know a little bit, and he aspired to play professional football. Right? His plans were to play quarterback in the NFL. We spent a summer together after my sophomore year of college. But as I got to know him, 
or the more I got to know him, the more I realized that something was a little off. Something was a little bit fishy. He had just finished his freshman year of college, and yet he wasn't on the football team. Right? I would have thought that's a pretty important step if you want to play in the NFL. One day, we went outside. We were close to the beach. We went out to the beach, and we were throwing the football back and forth, and pretty quickly, it became apparent why he wasn't on the football team, because he can barely throw a football. You see, friends, or my friend, he was saying one thing, right? He was saying that he planned to play quarterback in the NFL, and he was being serious, but yet his life gave no credibility to what he had to say. So as a result, nobody took him seriously. Nobody listened to anything that he had to say, whether it was about football or something else. So Church Paul's second charge to Timothy is this. It's to let your life undergird, to let your life, the way you live it, give authenticity to the ministry of the word. And nobody is going to take what you have to say seriously if your life is unaffected by the word that you preach. And the same principle is true for us, isn't it? As I was thinking of the implications for us this week, I saw uh, your church covenant. I came across OBC's church covenant hanging in Trey's office. And in the fourth line of your church covenant, this stuck out to me, you promise one another this. You say, we will promote a faithful gospel witness. Do you know, do you know what destroys a faithful gospel witness perhaps more than anything else? Isn't it hypocrisy? Isn't it hypocrisy? It's claiming one thing. It's saying one thing with your words and then living your life as if those words have no bearing on reality. Church, you've promised in your covenant to do the same thing that Paul charges to Timothy. It's to let your lives give authenticity to the gospel that you proclaim. And notice that it gives Timothy his reason again, another reason in verse 6. It's another verse that starts with the word for, another reason. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure is close. The reason that he gives Timothy to endure in faithfulness is his own martyrdom. It's because he won't be around much longer to be faithful himself. He's on death row officially this time, and he knows the time he has left on the earth is quickly coming to an end. And in this verse, in verse 6, he uses two images to portray his imminent death. The first one he uses, he uses language taken from the Old Testament sacrificial system. God's people in this system, they were first commanded to bring a burnt offering, which was often an animal. It was the costliest sacrifice that you could give. Then they were commanded to bring a grain offering after that, and then they were commanded to bring a drink offering at last, right? 
And that was the, the, the least uh, the least weighty of the sacrifices. It was the last one to be offered. It spoke to God's acceptance of the burnt offering. I want you to say, or I want you to see that what Paul says in this verse, in verse six, is really a humble statement. He's talking about his life being poured out as a drink offering, but he doesn't consider it the greater sacrifice His was the lesser sacrifice. He's pointing us to Jesus, to the great sacrifice who was poured out for the forgiveness of sin. Paul's pouring out his life as a drink offering, right? It was the least he could do in light of the one who sacrificed himself and made Paul acceptable before God. It was the least Paul thinks that he could do. And church, this is what our lives as Christians are to be. They're to be living sacrifices, changed because of the sacrifice of Jesus. And that's the first image that he gives in verse 6. And the second, he uses the image of his departure. He uses that word departure. It was a regular word for death at the time. It was also used when sailors would untie or they would unhitch their boats from the docks and they would be set out to sea. If you think about it, the two images really go together since the end of this life really signifies the beginning of the next. And now, before his new voyage begins, he looks back over his ministry over the course of the last 30 years And he says, not in boasting, right, not in pride, but he says in faithful confidence. He says, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. Timothy, I've kept the faith. This is the very thing that he hoped he could say years earlier when he was addressing the Ephesian elders, the church in Ephesus, the same post where Timothy now presides. He said this in Acts 20. He said, but I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course and the ministry I've received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of grace. By God's grace, he says, I've done it. I haven't given up. And he says to Timothy, follow my example, brother. Don't give up. But but what do you think it was that was really motivating Paul all this time. There's no way his life went according to plan, at least according to his own plan. No doubt it was full of twists and turns and highs and lows. What was it that motivated him? What motivation was he holding out to Timothy? What is it that motivates Paul still in this passage? During a time when Christians were encased in wax and they were set on fire. What was it that was motivating him? Consider with me verse 8. He says, There was reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, 
And hear this, not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. Paul had his eyes fixed on his reward. The entire time he was banking on the promise that Jesus will, will reward him with the crown of righteousness. Now nothing remains for Paul except for him to collect his prize. Church, this is in deliberate contrast to the sentence, the sentence he's expecting to hear any day now from a human judge in a human court. The emperor Nero, he may declare him guilty, he may condemn him to death, but there will soon be a great reversal of Nero's verdict when the Lord, the righteous judge, declares him righteous. And praise God, praise God for Paul, sure, but praise God that this isn't just for Paul. Who does he say that this reward is for in the very last phrase in verse 8? He says the crown of righteousness is reserved for all who loved his appearing. Paul is speaking to that day when Jesus returns and he gathers his people to himself. So church, do you long for that day? Christian, do you love his appearing? Do you love his appearing more than you do the temporary and fleeting comforts of this world? If so, if you do, then church, be encouraged. Friend, be encouraged, be confident, and endure faithfully to the end as you anticipate your reward from Jesus himself. Let's close with one last consideration together. Paul both opens and closes his argument with the breathtaking reality that Jesus is the ultimate judge. Not only is this the grounds he gives for his charge to preach and to practice, but it's an urgent reminder that we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. All of us. Every person who's ever lived still today. And on that day, according to the book of 2 Timothy, one of two things is going to happen to all of us. According to chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, He says, if we've died with him, that is, if we've been united to Christ by faith in his death, his resurrection, he says, if we've died with him, then we will also live with him. Yet if we deny him, then he will also deny us. For if you deny Christ, there's going to be a far greater judgment than the one handed out at the demands of King Nero. This one's going to be justified, and you will be denied. Yet the righteous judge submitted himself to the judgment due your sin in place of his unrighteous people, so that if you would turn from your sin and believe in him, then you will be awarded his righteousness. Judgment in the gospel, it's turned on its head as Jesus rewards you with his life And he takes the verdict of your death. And now through his resurrection, you can enjoy his reward instead of fear it. Amen. 
You can enjoy and long for that day instead of fear it. So brothers and sisters, the good news of the gospel, it's this. It's it's that you don't have to live your life wondering whether or not you're going to endure. Whether or not you're going to make it through these trials one way or another. We know that Jesus has reserved, the text says, your reward. He's reserving it just for you. So church, fix your eyes on his appearing. Knowing there's no reason to fear condemnation from the judge. And you have every reason to anticipate your victory as you're united to him. Let's pray together.